0: In our uh, verses this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But just to get a sense of the context, I'm going to read beginning in chapter 3, and I'll read through chapter 4. This is God's Word, Jonah 3, verse 1. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night And perished in a night. And should I or should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the living God. Uh, Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do uh, give you praise for your word this morning. Uh, We praise you that the scriptures reveal who you are, your character. Uh, We praise you, God, that you are uh, gracious and compassionate, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we praise you that you have demonstrated that love to us in Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that as we um, hear your word proclaimed this morning, that you would be glorified, that your name and your character would be exalted. And as always, Father, we pray that the spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the son of God and that you would do it for the glory of your beautiful name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God has done the unthinkable. Yeah, we have witnessed a revival. What was lost has been found, the dead have been raised to life, mercy has triumphed over-judgment. The prophet has spoken and the people have responded. From the greatest to the least, an entire city has turned to God. And not just any city, Nineveh. That great city in the kingdom of Assyria, A godless city, a proud city, a violent city. A city once far off from God has turned to God. And even the king has humbled himself by stepping off his throne, removing his robe and covering himself in sackcloth and ashes. This king has sent out a decree urging the people, cry out to God, turn from your sin in hopes that God would show mercy. The people did just that, and God did what God always does when people trust him and turn from their sins. He has been merciful and provided salvation. He spared them. What a cause for rejoicing. When the people of Nineveh learn of their salvation, there's no question that they will be happy. We know that God delights in steadfast love and mercy, so God is happy. We also know that the angels in heaven rejoice when even one sinner repents So the angels are happy. Everybody's happy, except for one person, Jonah. Jonah is not happy. In fact, in verse 1, it says that Jonah is angry. Now, Now, how is that possible? How is it possible for Jonah, who is a prophet, the role of the prophet being to proclaim God's word to the people, how is it possible that Jonah, this prophet, is the only one who's not happy when the people respond to God's word? Jonah has missed the point. Which is that the proclamation of God's word isn't just an end in and of itself, but it has a goal. And Jonah had the wrong goal in mind. Jonah wanted that proclamation to result in Nineveh's destruction. But God intended that that proclamation would end Nineveh's salvation and Jonah was not happy about that. And so in our text this morning there's three things that I want us to notice as we kind of unpack Jonah's unhappiness with this situation. The three things are this. First, an angry prayer. Second, an appointed providence, and then third, an appropriate pity. An angry prayer, an appointed providence, and an appropriate pity. First, an angry prayer. Let's read again verse 2. Well, verse one, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. People are saved, and Jonah is angry. People are reconciled and Jonah is unhappy about reconciliation. It probably doesn't get much more backwards and twisted than that. To be be angry that people have ceased their rebellion, humbled themselves, and given their lives to God. I don't know if there's anything greater in this universe to rejoice at than people repenting, turning from their sins and trusting in God. And on the flip side, it, it can't get any more twisted than being mad about that. There's a lot of things you can be mad about, but, but that, this is not a flattering portrait of the prophet Jonah. It's not his best hour. In fact, this whole book hasn't been his best hour, really, as we've seen as we've gone through it. He's not painted in a favorable light. And, and the fact that Jonah is not painted in a favorable light actually strengthens my faith in the Bible. Because in the Bible, we see utter realism. The Bible's very Realistic about the flaws of its main characters. You know, one of the common arguments against Christianity is the behavior of people who profess to be Christians, right? You hear that kind of thing all the time. Christians are such hypocrites. I'm not going to go and worship with those guys, they're all hypocrites. It's like Gandhi once famously said, he said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. So for many, that's a justification to stay away from the church. Now, it is true that the Bible calls all Christians to high standards of moral conduct. So in Philippians 2.15, it says that we are to shine like lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation and so when christians act sinfully god's name is blaspheme amongst the non-believers that's true but what this passage and other passages like it shows us is that the bible is not a book filled with heroes and morality tales It's the exact opposite. The Bible puts the flaws of its main characters on full display for everyone to see that we're not to look to them, but we're to look to Jesus. There's only one hero in the Bible, the ultimate hero, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the other things we see here, along with this um, this biblical realism, is that uh, and it, we've pointed this out before, is that like all of us, Jonah is a mixed bag. We we see the good, we see the bad. We see the highs and the lows, the peaks, the valleys. So we see we've seen him running from God in chapter 1, and then we see him singing psalm-like praises to God in chapter 2. We see him boldly proclaiming God's word in chapter 3. And then here we see him sulking like a child in chapter 4. And you see it here. It says that he's angry with God. And yet, you also see in verse 2 that he's praying to God. So he's angry, and yet he's still praying. Now, it should go without saying that it's never Right to be angry with God. It's never right to be angry with God. There are not many things in this world that display more arrogance than being angry with God, particularly sinful, finite creatures being angry at a perfectly righteous, infinite God. Anger at God communicates something. If anger at God could talk, this is what it would say. God, what is wrong with you? Why would you do that? If I were you, God, that's not what I would have done. Why did you let that happen? I would never in a thousand years let that happen. That's not wise. That's not loving. I'm wiser than you, God. I'm more loving than you are, God. I'm more righteous than you. Actually, you know what, God? Why don't you just step down from the throne and I'll take over from here? Thank you very much. That's what anger says to God. And do do you see the just the utter blasphemy in that sentiment? We should not fall into the trap of thinking, yeah, that Jonas, that guy was messed up. How dare he! In fact, I would argue that that Jonah is more righteous than many of us. Because as I said, as sinful as it is for him to be angry with the Lord, at least he's praying to God. Some of us rarely go to God in prayer, happy or angry. At least Jonah's not prayerless. And also, he's being honest with God about his anger. He's not trying to cover it up. Now, I know most of us, we're not gonna come out and say, God, I'm angry at you. But instead, you know what we do? We grumble. We grumble. Either in our hearts or out loud. We complain. And it's interesting to look at that word grumble in the scriptures and just to see how much God hates it. And you really see it with Israel in the desert after being freed from slavery to Egypt. And so in Numbers fourteen twenty-seven, the Lord says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. In 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, verse 10, believers are warned not to grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Does that seem harsh? Destroyed by the destroyer for grumbling? Really? Well, why is that? Why does God respond so intensely to grumbling? It's because grumbling is an expression of anger towards God. It's just a disguised expression of anger towards God. And it's so easy for us to do it without conviction that we can literally go through our lives grumbling about almost everything. We grumble about our jobs. We grumble about our professors, our bosses, our spouses. We grumble about our lack of a spouse. We grumble about our finances, our roommates, our parents, our kids, we grumble about our neighbors, our unsaved friends, the weather, our health. We grumble, we grumble about government, politics, you name it. If it exists, it's a candidate for our grumbling. We need to see that, brothers and sisters, for what it is. It's anger at God. No, it's not, it's not Jonah just coming right out and just saying he's angry, but it's anger at God. That's what grumbling is. And if left unchecked, inward grumbling will become verbal complaining, which will become bitterness at God, which will ultimately become violence against God if that were possible. And that's exactly what it became when God came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note in the Gospels, even in the passage that Garrett read earlier, Luke 15, verse 2, it says of the Pharisees and the scribes, it says that they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the ultimate end of grumbling is seeking to kill God himself and to remove him from the throne so that we can sit in the throne. Grumbling is wicked. And so there's no wonder why Philippians 2.14 says, do all things, all things, without grumbling. Let's take a closer look at Jonah's angry prayer. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In this prayer, Jonah is saying, see, I told you, that's why I didn't want to come here. Because of how you are. You're loving. Yeah, how crazy that sounds. I'm mad at you because you're so kind. Oh, I'm boiling over because of your generosity. What? And you notice that he's using scriptural truths about God. But he's not actually praising God though. Right? So so this when, when he says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, towards the end of verse two, right, this this is not a prayer of praise from Jonah right here. This is Jonah saying true things about God, but he's saying them with a heart of anger. It's the kind of thing that we do when we're angry about something and a brother or sister tries to encourage us and we say things like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know God is sovereign, I know. Right, saying something true about God, but not from a heart of gratitude and praise towards God that's actually taking God's name in vain. Because it's in the heart speaking an untruth about God even as the lips say something true. And as we continue to to look at this this angry prayer, notice the first request, the first prayer request in this prayer in verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Now, it's interesting because when we see this and uh, we see the same request repeated in verses 8 and 9 when he says, it's better for me to die than live, and I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. When we see Jonah praying in this way, it actually puts the events of chapter 1 into perspective. You remember back in chapter 1 when Jonah told the sailors, throw me off the boat, that the winds might die down? When we look at this, what Jonah is requesting from God in chapter 4, we see that chapter 1 was actually a suicide attempt. Jonah had no intention of being rescued when he was thrown, when he asked him to throw throw him off that boat. In his mercy, God sent the fish to rescue him, but Jonah was trying to kill himself all the way back then. And so you might say, well, well, what is it that would make someone, especially a prophet, want to kill himself? Well, it's the same thing that would make anyone want to kill themselves. They see death as preferable to the present state of their lives. Jonah said it. He says it right here it's better to die than to live. It's, it's losing hope. For Jonah, he saw the death or death in chapter 1, as preferable to obeying God's call. And here, in chapter 4, he sees death as preferable to living in a world where his enemies can enjoy the same benefits of salvation that he's received. This is a sad state of affairs. But before we're, again, too hard on Jonah... I would simply ask you a question. Is there anything or anyone that you presently have that if God were to take it away would make you say, it's better to die? I'll ask that again. Is there anything or anyone that you have Presently, that if God were to take it away, would make you say, It's better to die. For Jonah, it was the exclusivity of salvation for Israel. What is it for you? What is it for me? We all have those things. God is kind. In His mercy, He's lavished us over and over with His goodness, with His gifts, so much that we can begin to presume upon those gifts. We can begin to just expect that they'll continue to come over and over again. And then when God chooses to either withhold a gift or to take something away from us, we have hearts that are ready. To fight with God about it. May we, may we all be a people who are grateful enough for the gifts from God that we're willing to hold them with open hands. May we all be be humble enough to say to God, you do all things well. And so whatever is right In your sight, O Lord, I trust you. May God give us that grace. Now, in the mercy of God, he responds with a question for Jonah in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? It's always interesting to see God asking questions in scripture first and foremost because God is omniscient or he's all-knowing so therefore he doesn't ask because he's lacking in information God asks questions not for his sake primarily as though he needs to learn something new but he does it for ours for our sake the questions from God They demonstrate an unfathomable humility, mercy, and patience on God's part towards us. And God's questions expose us, and they show us what's in our hearts. Consider some of the questions that God asks in in Scripture. Adam, where are you? Who whom will you compare to me that I should be like him? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Why will you die in your sin? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Questions like that are meant to get us to search our hearts and see where it is that we stand before God. So I want to propose a question to you this morning, particularly if you are not a Christian in this morning. You don't understand yourself to be a follower of Christ. We're glad you're here. Thankful that you came. But the question that I would ask is why haven't you turned to God? Why do you refuse to trust him? Why will you die in your sin? Why haven't you Responded to God's offers of mercy and kindness in Jesus. See, what we believe here at Delray Baptist Church is that every last one of us, from the Jonahs to the Ninevites, from the so called good people to the so called bad people, that all of us have a common problem. And that problem is that we have offended a holy God with our sin. The Bible teaches that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's different kinds of ways that you can fall short. You can fall short by being bad and you can fall short by trying to be good. But either way, we've all fallen short of God's glory. And that falling short brings about a response from God. And that response is the righteous, just anger and wrath of God that we all deserve. And if we do not repent and turn from our sins, there's nothing that awaits except for judgment. And the good news of the gospel is that while it's true that God is absolutely righteous, he's absolutely just, he's absolutely holy along with those things, he's also a God of steadfast love, mercy, kindness, and compassion. And in his kindness and his compassion, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God to come into this world and to live a perfect life that none of us are able to live and when jesus lived that perfect life he was obeying the law not for his own sake but on the behalf of others and jesus went to the cross and he died and when he died on the cross he suffered that wrath and judgment of God that I just spoke of and again he suffered it not for himself but as a substitute in the place of others and this is what we call the great exchange you have Jesus and his perfect righteousness and then you have us with our falling short deserving of wrath And there's a switch that takes place at the cross. God on the cross treated Jesus as if he lived that life, that falling short kind of life that we've all lived. And he did that. He treated Jesus that way so that through faith, if we trust in him and turn from our sins, he can treat us like we live the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Praise God. It's the best offer out there. You're not going to find anything better than that. God gets my sin and I get Jesus' perfect righteousness. Jesus was raised from the grave to demonstrate that every single thing that he said about himself was absolutely true. And so the good news is that you don't have to die in your sins. But you can be reconciled to God and have a relationship with the living God by turning from your sins and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us also notice not only this angry prayer, but let's notice secondly, appointed providences. Appointed providences. Verse 6. You know, the Bible is clear in its teaching that God is absolutely sovereign. That is, he's in control of all things in such a way that even if even a hair can't fall from our heads apart from God, a sparrow can't fall apart from him. He, he governs this world with complete authority and he's sovereign over all circumstances and things that come into our lives and out of our lives. It's the providence of God. And, and God is, he's using these things, this plant sprouting up and this worm, he, he's using these things to expose what's in Jonah's heart. In the same way, that he uses circumstances to expose what's in our hearts. You know, one, one of the challenges with being a preacher is that oftentimes the Lord will get you with the very thing that you're studying and preparing to share with others. And so this week I've been just meditating on that question. Do you do well to be angry? And you know, earlier in the week, as I'm meditating on it, I'm like, mm, that's good. That's just such a good searching, penetrating question, Lord. That's awesome. And then as the week went on, just a whole bunch of stuff, little stuff started to happen that just made me mad. I feel like I was more angry this week than I've been in a long time. And every time I would, I, like, literally things like, getting up and just hitting my head on the car door kinds of things and just making me mad. And in those moments hearing, do you do well to be angry? Oh my, God. <laughs> my wife and I got into a conflict just, you know, just coming, but one about to go into a meeting with, with other church planters about godly church planting stuff And right before that meeting, my wife and I enter into a conflict and I'm just like, and I hear it. Do you do well to be angry? The Lord will challenge us with things, but what I've had to come to learn and what I'm still learning, and what we all need to learn is that God will bring circumstances into our lives to expose those kinds of things. And in those moments, what we need to do is to repent to turn from that anger, to acknowledge it, like Jonah did, and turn from it. And so do you see the sovereignty of God here in this text? It's so clear with the word appointed. He appointed a plant in verse six. He appointed a worm in verse seven. He appointed a scorching wind in verse eight. That goes right along with God appointing the fish in chapter one verse 17. And God being the one who hurled the wind on the sea in chapter 1 verse 4. God is the one who's ultimately behind these things and it's there so that Jonah would respond. And do you see how you see how Jonah responds to God? In verse 6 it says that it says that he was exceedingly glad. So it's it's hot there. It's uncomfortable, and God in his grace (laughs) raises up a plant to give some shade, some coolness, some relief to Jonah, and it says that Jonah is exceedingly glad. But you notice that that same phrase in verse 6, exceedingly glad, it's a parallel for verse 1 where it says that Jonah was exceedingly angry. So that contrast is meant to show us something. When it comes to the salvation of a people that Jonah didn't see as deserving, he's exceedingly angry. But when it comes to his own personal comfort, he's exceedingly glad. So God teaches him a lesson by appointing that comfort, but then also appointing the thing that's going to take away that comfort, the worm and the scorching wind. And then you see how Jonah responds to that? He's angry, angry enough to die. So God, he's basically saying, God, if you do great things in my life, I'm exceedingly glad. But if you do things that make me uncomfortable, I'm ready to die. See that shiftiness, that unfaithfulness that we're all prone to with God to basically judge him? on the basis of how we think things should go in our lives and and judging whether or not we're even going to serve him based off of how he's treating us and whether things are going the way that we think that they should go. May we trust God enough that even through the hard things, even through the difficult things, because those are things that God appoints as well, He doesn't just appoint the plant. He appointed the worm as well. He didn't just appoint the fish to save Jonah. He appointed the storm as well. May we trust God enough to say, naked I came into this world and naked I'll go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May God give us that grace. Finally, let us notice an appropriate pity, an appropriate pity on God's part. Verse 10, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So God is exposing Jonah that Jonah is upset about a perishing plant, more upset about a perishing plant than he was about a perishing people. And God makes that clear to Jonah. I think as an as an illustration of this, I just want to read this quote. Um, this quote is from... Uh, a criminal who committed horrible crimes and was sentenced to life in jail and said that he turned to Christ while in jail. Let's listen to what he said. He said... It's wrong for people who commit crimes to try to shift the blame to someone else. I think that's just a cop-out. I take full responsibility. And then he explains what, what was behind his crimes. He said, I didn't feel accountable to anybody. There comes a point when a person has to be accountable. I alone am responsible for what happened. I had always believed the lie that evolution is truth, that we all came from slime, and when we die, that's it. I've since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of the earth. I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that everybody, including myself, will be accountable to him. If a person doesn't think that there's a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought, anyway. I've since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're the only true God. The person who said that, was Jeffrey Dahmer. For those who don't know, Jeffrey Dahmer will go down in history as a very wicked man. He was a homosexual who abducted, raped, tortured, murdered, and cannibalized at least 17 victims. And he is ranked amongst the world's worst men in the minds of most. And the backstory behind Dahmer's profession of faith is that there was a Christian lady named Mary Mott who saw him on a television show discussing his need for inner peace. And so she she mailed a series of Bible lessons to Dahmer, which he completed and mailed back to her. And so he thanked her and said that he wanted to become a Christian. And through a series of events, a Christian minister went into the prison and studied the Bible with Dahmer. He was baptized on May 10, 1994, and then he continued to study the Bible every week in prison until the day of his murder in November of 94. One television report quoted Dahmer as saying that he was at peace with himself and God just two weeks prior to his murder. Now, I don't know about the sincerity or lack thereof of his profession, but the question I would throw out, the question that challenges me is, is the mercy of God, is the grace of God big enough to cause us to rejoice around the throne in heaven with Jeffrey Dahmer? assuming he repented of his sins. And the biblical answer is a resounding yes. Yes, God's grace is big enough because Jesus is great enough and the work that he accomplished is sufficient enough for the worst of sinners. Even you and me. One illustration that I think really gets at the heart of it is, if you think about, for us to reach God, we have to jump across the Grand Canyon. Some of us may jump farther than others. Some may jump out two feet. Some may jump out six inches. Some may jump out five feet let's say you have an an Olympic quality athlete who's able to jump out 20 feet. It doesn't matter because we can't get to the other side. We need someone to bridge that gap for us. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. The smallest sin is enough to condemn for eternity in hell. And the greatest sin is not too big that Jesus can't save from that sin. It's the kind of savior that we serve. And so when you see God saying, should I not pity Nineveh in verse 11, that should remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom when he saw the crowds, he looked out. And it says he had compassion or pity on them. Same word because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Should that not be our heart towards the lost? Should that not be our heart towards those who are different than us? May we never be a people who look at any one person or any group of people and say that they're too sinful for God to save. It's not true. It's a lie. He saved you. He saved me. The only way that a person can be angry if someone repents is if we don't understand grace. Praise God for his grace. When we look at that last phrase, also much cattle, it feels kind of anticlimactic. Why does it end right there? It feels like a sudden stop and end to the book. But... It ends on a question for a reason. It's meant to be open-ended. It's meant to cause us to search ourselves. It's meant to cause us to be exposed. And when it's talking about the cattle, as we mentioned last week, the cattle being the, 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 the source of, of economic fruitfulness in an agricultural society, what is God saying? God's, God is saying, I care about the people. I care about the entire cities. Am, am I not going to have pity on them? Will you have pity on them, Jonah? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for your compassion, for your kindness, your grace, which is greater in all of our sin. Lord, may we be a people who respond to your grace by extending grace to others. Do this work in us, Lord, for the sake of your beautiful name. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.